Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to start out with a quote from an individual who is responsible for R.C. Sproul. If you know who R.C. Sproul is, if you don't, it's okay. But he's a famous church theologian who um, made this statement. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. The sermon this morning seeks to address the insidious nature of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness keeps many people from entering the kingdom of God. And the entirety of Jesus' ministry, the only people he condemns are who? the self-righteous, the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees. And in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is contrasting the broad way with the narrow way, I don't know how you understand those two ways. Most of the time we think of the broad way as the evil, younger brother, licentious, really, really bad people who just don't want to follow Jesus and want to do their own thing. And the narrow way are people who want to follow Jesus. But it's interesting, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not comparing good people with bad people. He's comparing good people with self-righteous people. The broad way is the way of self-righteousness. The broad way is following the way of the Pharisees. Which means self-righteousness is innate within all of us, because it's the broad way. And I don't know about you, but how easy it is to see self-righteousness in someone else as opposed to your own life. I was talking with someone this morning just before our time together. We were praying and uh, we were talking about what our sermon is going to be about. And they made a joke. Hey, I need to send that to my friend. You ever heard the phrase, it takes one to know one? Do you realize that what you criticize you often are? that many times people are actually Pharisees to Pharisees. And we would do well to examine our own lives to see if what is keeping us from experiencing the power of the gospel is our damnable good works. Returning to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, which I heard you, had you turn to in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In today's evangelical world, many will say to Jesus, did we not attend youth group? Did we not go on mission trips? 
Did we not attend church regularly all in your name? And Jesus will say to you, away from me, you evil doers. It's important to notice here too that Jesus calls these people who actually cast out demons evil doers. This is insane thinking. No one in their right mind in our culture look at someone who goes to church every Sunday and call them an evildoer. And yet this is exactly how Jesus describes the self-righteous. And so if all of this is true, and it's keeping us from experiencing the gospel, then we should examine our own hearts, our own lives, and begin to address where is the self-righteousness and how do we actually deal with our own self-righteousness. In order to do that, we're going to make a few points to get through this this morning. But the first thing we need to see is that morality is not righteousness. Morality is not righteousness. Unfortunately, most Christians have not stopped to contemplate the difference between what a self-righteous action is and what a gospel-motivated action is. Just because someone is moral, because they obey the Ten Commandments, because they're nice, they don't steal, they are married, they don't cheat on their wife, does not mean that all of their actions are pleasing to God. A case in point are the Pharisees. Here, the ruling class of Israel in Jesus' day, they were freaks about obedience. They went all the way down to tithing their spices. You and I are unaware of what is in our spice cabinet until we need it. And notice the harsh words that Jesus has for these people. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed, self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. You can read Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus pronounces seven woes on the Pharisees. This is just one of them. And what this necessarily indicates is that just because one performs a right action does not mean that that action is actually pleasing to the God of the universe. Morality does not equate with righteousness. And why? Why is morality, doing the right thing, tithing down to your spices, not the right thing? Because Jesus will speak to the hypocrites in Matthew chapter 15 and say this. Sorry, went too far ahead. You hypocrites, Isaiah did well prophesying about you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrine and the commandments of men. What is the essential difference between morality and righteousness? It is the location of your hearts. Where is your heart? This is why Pastor Nate did an excellent job a few weeks ago talking about the essential nature of the heart and how it works. Because the difference between the broad way and the narrow way is the one of hearts. The motivational structures of the heart are absolutely essential to determining the worth of an action. 
motivation is everything. Why we do what we do possesses an eternal difference. Notice how Paul will dis- distinguish this distinguishing between two ways. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. So there is for Paul sorrow, but not all sorrow is the same. There is a worldly sorrow and there is a godly sorrow. And only one type of those sorrows is actually pleasing to God, brings life, brings salvation, because there is a sorrow for sin that actually leads to more death. And so the difference are the motivational structures of the heart that actually produce two very different types of sorrow. This passage teaches that Not all virtue is actually real virtue. Not all morality is genuine morality. Not all acts of righteousness are genuine righteousness. And so I think we need to distinguish between what I'm going to call selfishly motivated virtue and godly gospel motivated righteousness. This is the important distinction that we have to deal with. Why do you do what you do? Is it a selfish motivation, or is there a gospel motivation behind it? And the reason why this is so hard is because on the outside, the cup looks clean for everybody. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. Your cup looks clean. You all came here this morning. You look clean. But there's something radically different about the inside. Something radically different about the motivational structures of the heart. Which leads to another point that is right along the same lines, that if all right actions are not genuinely righteousness, then not all change is actual genuine change. People change all the time for the better. Take, for example, someone who's been abusing alcohol. And they've been regularly becoming intoxicated. What does that intoxication do? It destroys relationships, does it not? It hurts people. It's bad for themselves. And so they stop drinking. Why? Because they don't want their wife to leave them. If they get one more DUI, they're going to lose their job. And so they begin to change. And they stop becoming regularly intoxicated. Now, is that change good? Trick question. Of course it's good. It's going to promote human flourishing. It's going to actually allow relationship to happen. But in the sight of God, that change may not be genuine, authentic change with which he is actually pleased. It may not be gospel righteousness. And why is that? Because we need to come to see that all change takes place at the heart level. All change takes place at the nature of the motivational structures of what you put your hope and trust in. I have a quote from an old Puritan that's a little bit longer, and I'm going to stop halfway through and make comments as we read through it. But he says, It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. Our bad 
things in our life don't just go away. Like, you struggle with something, did you wake up one day and it just went away? Any of you like that in your life? It'd be nice. And very seldom is it done through instrumentality of reasoning or by the force of mental determination. Most of us can't say, I am never going to do that again. Right? Maybe one or two of you in this room could say that about something. But most people who deep down in their heart hate something and don't ever want to do that again and say, I will never do that again with all of their mental determination, their moral fortitude, they still can't change. Why? Because he says, what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. And one taste may be made to give way to another and lose its power entirely as the reigning affection in the minds. What does that mean? He goes on to make this case, and this is how I'm going to interpret it for the New Living Translation of an 18th century Puritan, that says this. The American life looks like this cycle. You go to high school, you're up in high school days, you begin to party, you go to college to do what? Do what? Get a job, but most people go to college to party. <laughs> and the, the job is secondary, the degree. Okay, so let's, you know, say you go to college and... I, I'm just assuming that all colleges are just big party machines. Maybe they're not, but um, everywhere I go, people are saying, this is the biggest college party college in the country. And I'm like, is, every, is, that, is everyone number one on the list? However, my point is, is that most college people in America are partying. When they become 35, why are they no longer partying? Because it hurts. Because it hurts. <laughs> It's true. Do they stop loving partying? Probably not. Probably something else became more important to them. And they still party from time to time. What became more important to them? Money. Yeah. Money. Money, and that's why we go to college to get the job, because we know we can only party for a little bit, but then we've got to get to real life and get money. And then, let's just say you get enough money, what does the American dream look like? You go into politics. Because then you can get power. So here's the life of every American. You party, you get money, you go to politics, you die. And along the way, none of those deep, deep things that your heart longs for were ever gone away but something new entered into it. Some new reigning affection came into this reality. So he says the youth ceases to idolize sensual pleasure, but it is because the idol of wealth has gotten the ascendancy. Even the love of money can have mastery over the heart because it's drawn into the world of ideology and politics. And now he's lured over by love of power and moral superiority. But notice this. There is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object might be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. So the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is with the expulsive power of a new one. What is Chalmers saying about the human heart, Christian or non-Christian? People change when something greater in their life actually grabs hold of their hearts. That is how people change. 
And it's the same in the Christian world. That if you want to change, you have to have something new driving out that old affection with a new affection. That's what we call gospel realization, is having the gospel come in and conquer every other affection. We believe the gospel is the greatest affection that conquers all other affections and is itself unconquerable. Each profound change in the motivational structures of your heart that are not based in the good news of Jesus is nothing more than a sham of self-righteousness. What is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is just another way of speaking about self-justification. Self-justification. Because of sin's power over our lives that we looked at last week, the, the power of sin over us, everyone seeks to justify their existence. You seek to, to justify your existence, not just to yourself, but to others and to God. And one of the primary ways, because Jesus calls it the broad way, that people seek to justify their life is by being very, very good. Or at least as good as they can be. By attempting to be very, very good, one bases their righteousness on their efforts and their accomplishments. And by attempting to be very, very good, they build their identity that we are like this group of people. We are Republicans. This is my identity. We are Democrats. This is my goodness. It's all about themselves. It's all about their moral fortitude. And as we have talked about in the previous sermons, one's goodness cannot save you. It can't save you in the past, it can't save you in the present, and your goodness will not save you in the future. And so what keeps you from God is your damnable good works. Apart from the gospel, this operating mode of the heart, the motivational structure of the heart, self-righteousness is the default mode of our hearts. It influences every affectional thread that comes out of our hearts. And when we live this way, it leads us to one of two places. It leads us either into pride, because those who actually believe they can live up to their own standards are, number one, delusional about reality, but they become so filled with hubris about their own goodness that they are lifting themselves up and they can look down on other people. And why do you look down on other people? Because it lifts you up in pride. Just know that. Just know that when you're in self-righteous looking down on others, the reason you do so is because it brings you up. And it leaves you in a place of pride. And you're justifying your existence that you're not like those people, you're not like these people, I am like this group of people. Luke records a parable of Jesus describing this attitude. And it's interesting how Luke introduces this parable, it's in Luke chapter 18, I'm not going to have you turn there. But in Luke chapter 18... Jesus introduces a parable saying these words. This parable is for all of those who believe in their own abilities to justify their life. That's how the beginning of the parable begins. And as Tad mentioned earlier, the parable goes on to say, God, I thank you that I am not like those Democrats. God, I thank you I'm not like those people marching in D.C. today. 
God, I thank you that I am not like you fill in the blank. In Jesus' day, it was, I'm not like the tax collector. I'm not like the prostitute. And Jesus says, but there's a tax collector who went to the temple and he stood a distance away from the temple and he couldn't even look up to heaven to pray to God. And he just bowed his head and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, you know who actually was justified that day? You know who was actually declared to be righteous? Not the self-righteous Pharisee, but the tax collector, the outcast of the outcast. Self-righteous people are so out of touch with the reality of their own sinfulness that when other people begin to critique them, what do they become immediately? Defensive. As evidenced by the Pharisees, when Jesus began to critique him, what did they do? Oh, Jesus, you're right. Now they said, oh, Jesus, you're going to a cross. People who are truly honest about themselves, about the reality of their lives, really know that they cannot live up to the standard that they have for themselves. And when you become in that reality, you come into that sense of life that you have this ultimate sense of bar that you think you live up to and you look at your life every day and you're like, I don't live up to that reality. It leaves you not in pride, but it sends you into a pit of despair. You're like, I can never live up to this. You get discouraged. You beat yourself up. You're like, I need to be a better moral person. I need to try harder. I need to go to church more. I need to do this more. I'm just such a bad person. And so then you just live in this cycle of futility. I'm such a bad person. I need to do better. I'm doing better. I'm doing better. I'm doing better. I'm so great. But I'm not great. And so you go to despair. And you live in this endless cycle of self-righteous futility. But not only does it leave you in a place of pride and arrogance and hubris or a place of despair, but it leaves you in a place far from expected. Because morality and righteousness often look the same on the outside, those who live these external good moral lives are often seen to be better than those who live the evil lives. The older brother is often seen to be better than the younger brother. Even though the younger brother wanted his father dead, took all of his inheritance, and squandered it on prostitutes. And yet Jesus has some strong words, again for the self-righteous person, about the outcome of their life. Truly, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Wait a minute. Stop, stop. This is crazy. This is absolutely insane. Who is closer to the kingdom of God? The one who obeys and ties their spices? Or the person who actually is a tax collector and a prostitute? Who does Jesus actually say is closer to entering the kingdom of God? And how many of you sign up on that paper? This is the disease, the sickness, as we'll see in a few moments, the abomination of self-righteousness, that it actually leaves you further from the kingdom of God than the outright debased, debaucherous person. Isn't that insane? 
It's literally flipping our values upside down. And Jesus is telling all the religious leaders of the day that you see that tax collector over there? He's closer to entering the kingdom I'm bringing than you are. Now you see why the Pharisees are a little upset about Jesus. Because they're like, no, look at my life. Look at what I'm doing for God. Look at all the things I'm doing. Look at all the things I've experienced. Look at all the Bible, Old Testament law I know. But what about you? Are you self-righteous? Are you? Do you demonstrate critical and defensive spirits? What do I mean? Are you defensive when other people critique or judge you? When other people speak evil of you or judge you or critique you, do you become incensed and defensive? So when your spouse points out areas of weakness of you in your marriage, do you immediately get defensive and begin to point out all the areas in their life? Oh yeah, you think you're so good? Well, let me point out 50 reasons why you're terrible. When fellow employees complain to the boss about you or your workplace, do you get defensive about the quality of your work versus your coworker? When people begin to attack you, when they begin to say things you don't like about yourself, what is the instinct of your heart? I'm telling you, because the default mode of the human heart is self-righteousness. It is to immediately get defensive. In your defensiveness, something else begins to happen. The internal lawyer shows up. You begin to build a case of why that person hurt you and all the reasons why you're just and right to go back and do this to them and respond this way to them. And then at the end of the day, you're like, I don't know if that was right. And so then you go back and you're like, well, they did this, they did this, they did this, and I didn't do this. And you build up this case against other people. And if you're really, really struggling about it, you have to tell other people. When was the last time the internal lawyer showed up in your life? I bet it happens daily if you begin to look for it. Because an evidence that you are self-righteous is the defensiveness that you receive in your heart when other people judge and critique you. I mean, if you were, I mean, just be honest, if we were Jesus and the Pharisees said these things to us, we we would not do what Jesus did, I promise you. Number two, are you critical of other people's viewpoints and way of life? When I talk about critical here, I often have people tell me, well, I can't, tell, I can't like judge other people's way of life. I can't like help them get back on the track. Yes, obviously, as Christians, out of love, we need to correct when people are not living according to the story of the gospel. But this is not what I mean by having a critical spirit. Critical spirit here is looking down on someone. Not coming along someone in love, but looking down on someone. Do you have the best and or only way to do something? When other people bring their kids over to your house and they don't parent the same way you do, do you be like, oh my gosh, if these people would follow my parenting tips, my house would not be like this. And I'll be very honest. I had, I had a lot of self-righteousness about my parenting. People would just read Shepherding a Child's Heart and beat their kids and 
they, everything would be okay. That's a joke. Hyperbolic, don't call CPS. Why do we feel so critical of others so often? It's because it's how you justify your existence. You justify your life on your parenting. That's what makes you a real person. That gives you meaning and significance in your life. And when other people don't do it the way you do it, you can actually then say, well, look at my life. Look at me. Other people in their theology, you know, we're not talking about first level doctrines of like the creeds and the most important doctrines of scripture. We're talking about secondary, third, tertiary doctrines. And people don't believe what you believe. Do you just be like, oh, those crazy charismatics. See, critical and defensive spirits are nothing more than masks of hidden self-righteousness. And we wear these concealed masks more often than we desire to admit. Are you self-righteous? See, we need to also begin to analyze why are we self-righteous? What leads to these self-righteous actions? Why do we end up becoming like this? I want to just begin with the example of honesty. There is in our society what I'm going to call a general, selfishly motivated honesty. Like, why are most people in your life that you talk with on a regular day honest? Like, when you go to your job and you talk to someone about something, do you, do you come every time with a suspicion that they're going to be lying to you? No, you don't just walk. I mean, if you do, you got, there's probably a lot of relational problems there or you got some issues going on with your own self, but you don't just walk up to people and think, oh, I don't think you're telling, anything you're telling me is true. Most people are honest. Most of the time. They don't generally lie to their families. They don't generally lie at their jobs. They don't even lie on their income taxes. Why? One, the first reason is because they're motivated by fear. People are honest because they're afraid of getting caught in a lie. Any of you ever done something right because you're afraid if you got caught it would be even worse? Why don't you lie on your taxes? You want to. You'll save some money. But if you do, you'll end up paying more money. Why do you not lie to your wife? Because if you get caught, it's going to be far worse. If we move this conceptually even further into the realm of the church, why do you give money? Why do you go online and monthly give money or when the figurative, because we don't have an offering plate and someone stole our money box. So I don't, you, you have to give us money personally. But why do you give it to, to the pastors? You know why? Because deep down, sometimes you feel like if you don't, God's going to get you. To keep God at bay from giving my kid cancer, to keep God at bay from visiting me and giving my wife brain cancer, from keeping God at bay, we do what God expects. 
But it's all out of the motivation of fear. We are afraid of what God is going to do to us if we don't obey. We're afraid of what other people are going to think of us if we don't do the right thing. We're afraid that if we don't go to church on Sunday morning, people are going to look at us and be like, oh, that's a bad Christian. So I better go to church. Fear of God, fear of others, regularly, if you examine your heart, is a motivation that is there to obey in the name of Jesus, all the while it is nothing more than a damnable good work, keeping you from experiencing the power of the gospel in your life. But it's not just fear, it's pride. A second selfishly motivated reason for performing the right action for the wrong reasons is pride. Whether it's out there in the world, what we would call the, the secular, liberal, conservative version. I mean, even public, uh, even um, uh, Harvard Business School says, um, oh my goodness, I just lost what they were going to say. They basically say, obey in your job because in the long run it's going to help you. They basically say, Republicans say, don't be like those liberal Democrats who have no morality. And Democrats look at the Republicans and say, don't be like those Republicans who only care about their own wealth. And so there's this pride that's associated with why we actually obey in the outside world. But when it comes into the church, the church is not exempt from this pride. I mean, people within the church would never act self-righteously in pride towards other Christians, would they? Joke. The same issues that plagued the culture of the Pharisees in Jesus' day continue to plague us today. So many Christians clean the outside of the cup, but inside they're dirty. Because it gives them a sense of position. They are known in the church as the theologian. They are known in the church as the person who does the kids. And so they continue to do the right things on the outside because this has given them a status, a position, and it's all because they want power and pride and the approval of people. And so it's based in arrogance. What I want you to see is that the motivations, the selfish motivations that inspire these type of actions are nothing more than self-interested good behavior. Self-interested good behavior. And this self-righteousness that we do, inspired by fear and pride, please know it's not static. What I mean by that? It doesn't just leave you in one place. Ironically and, and tragically, it dynamically, it means it is constantly on the move. It is nurturing more and more evil in your heart. When you obey out of fear and pride, it's not like you're just staying here. No, you are actually moving yourself and your heart away from the gospel the more that you actually do it. Because the more you do it, the more arrogance you're being built up. And so one obeys out of fear that God is going to get me. It moves you far from the power of the gospel. And God is so smart. You know why he's so smart? Well, I mean, here's one reason. There's a million reasons. How come every person in the world isn't as bad as they could be? How come every person in the world isn't... I mean, every time you go in the grocery store, does everyone steal everything they want? No, how come? Would everyone love to just go to the grocery store for free? and not pay $32 for a gallon of milk? That'd be great, right? I mean, why doesn't everyone do that? Why doesn't everyone just, they don't like this person, just kill them. 
God actually uses this motivational structures of fear and pride to keep society ordered. They don't do that because they don't want to go to jail. They don't do that because they're afraid if they do, they're going to get caught. Or they do it because, you know what, I'm so good, I'm not like those little punks who are going to just go in the store and pretend to steal stuff and think they're so cool. I'm better than that. So God actually uses fear and pride and self-righteousness to keep his world structured and organized and so a society can actually flourish. Self-righteousness is inspired by fear and pride, and it leaves you far away from the kingdom of God. So what's the remedy? How do we actually deal with, the, with these motivational structures of the heart? We've been making the case over the weeks, and we're finally getting to the place that the answer is to make the gospel, what we have described and defined our last several weeks, to become reality, become real in our hearts. Not just a theoretical doctrine that we can subscribe to and write down and organize, but something that becomes real in our hearts. See, the Bible makes an essential distinction between good works and dead works. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, is purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Anyone know who the book of Hebrews was written to? A bunch of Jewish Christians who lived their whole life obeying the law apart from the gospel, and he calls these things dead works. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying Christ and his blood has purified us so that we no longer have dead works. But we are alive to God to serve the the living God, to give our hearts to Him. And so our hearts need to be cleansed from self-righteousness. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be people who do dead works. That's why Paul tells us there are good works. Not dead ones, but good works. They do not merit our salvation. They are not the foundation of why we are right with God, but it is something that now that we have been captivated of the gospel, we are able to do works with which God is pleased. And notice how the gospel deals with both of these motivational structures of the heart. Let's start with fear. What does the gospel say about those people who obey God out of fear? Here's what I want to say to you. With all of my heart. God got Jesus, so he will never get you. May not be the most theologically accurate statement, but it's this idea that if you believe the gospel, God is never out to get you. Everything he brings into your life is for your good. He is the only one who knows what is good for you. And so I don't have to obey out of fear that God is going to get me because there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And when the good news of Jesus washes my heart, I don't have to obey God out of fear. I obey Him out of joy and gratitude and love that I have been brought near and there is nothing that can ever be done to me to separate me from His love. But because I don't believe I'm never separated, because I believe there is still condemnation, because I believe I want something else other than God, I live in fear. And the gospel comes in and breaks and smashes that. I mean, if God kept a record of our sins, who could stand, the writer of Psalms, the psalmist says. 
All of your sin has been nailed to the cross, the record of debt that stood against you. When this implication of the good news comes to bear on your heart, it will push out religious motivation. It will push out fear. You can obey out of joy and gratitude. And when other people, you obey and you're afraid of what they're going to do to you and what they're going to think of you. You don't have to be afraid of what they think of you anymore. You know why? Because the only person who ever matters already has your back every time. When the gospel sinks deep, they are no longer captivated and motivated by fear. Because perfect love does what? Casts out fear. The love of God in 1 John, he says, God is love. And when that love captures your heart, you're no longer afraid. And you can obey for the joy of obedience, for the joy that God is working. The gospel not only destroys our fear, but it also dispels or destroys pride. When the gospel becomes a reality in the heart, pride must flee. Your self-righteous arrogance will dissipate when you begin to see how evil you actually are, that the only way you could be saved, the only way, is God the Father had to send Jesus for you. When you come to believe that the only way is something totally outside of you, you can no longer take position in yourself, you can no longer take pride in yourself that you are doing something for your conversion for your justification. The gospel shifts the focus away from my good works and your good works for righteousness to Jesus' good works. And when you begin to focus on all the good works of Jesus for you are perfect, and it is His good works that save us, we can no longer take pride in our good works. If anything is good in you, it's because God is working it in you. It's not because you're great. That's the scripture. That is how the gospel comes to bear. So that you don't look at other people in your missional community and be like, man, these people just don't know the man. Uh, they were committed like me. This place, that we... That's critical. That's defensiveness. That's self-righteousness. Wanting out of love for the glory of God to be captivated and coming together, that's different. But you see how they look the same on the outside? but the internal motivations are totally different. When the gospel is realized deep in the heart, it renders it impossible to look down upon others. You can no longer think of yourself as more worthy, more superior, more spiritual, because it renders us all the same all in need of Jesus' good works. This chapter, sorry, this sermon, I'm writing a book. The sermon began by stating that self-righteousness is a form of evil. Remember he called those people evildoers? Yeah, we need to double down as we close on the seriousness of this way of life. Jesus not only calls self-righteousness evil, but he calls it an abomination. He says in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, 
It's in black on black. So if you can read it, congrats. Um, my fault on that. I'm gonna, let me, if you want to write this down and look at it later, Luke 16, 14. Jesus is recorded by Lucas. This, the Pharisees, who are lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination. Where am I going? I don't want to give away the last slide, so we're perfect. We'll stay there. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus, in Luke 16, calls the justification of yourself, the self-righteous attitude of the Pharisees, an abomination. This is the exact same word used in Revelation 21-27 to describe those people who will never enter the kingdom of God, the new creation. Those people who are an abomination will have no part in the city that is to come, Luke Revelation 21-27 says. This evil and this abomination must regularly be repented of, not just by non-Christians, but by Christians. A Christian, then, is not only one who repents for the evil they have done, but for the right things they have done for the wrong reasons. Full stop. When was the last time you repented to God for something that you did that was right for a wrong reason? When was the last time you repented to God because you were nice to your wife, because it gave you a sense of superiority over her as she was yelling at you or vice versa? When was the last time you repented to God for not lying to your boss because you're afraid if you did, your coworker would snitch on you. When was the last time you repented of doing something good for the wrong reason? Father, help us to not be self-righteous. And not because we just don't want to be self-righteous, but because we want the good news of Jesus to wash over us, to purify us from our dead works so that we might be people who do good works. We'd be people who believe deeply that we have no condemnation and that all of our worth is not in what we do, but in what Jesus has done for us. So there might be humility and love and grace amongst this family here. May Matthew 7 be true of none of us. When we hear you say, depart from us because we never knew you, even though we were doing all the right things, God, may that not be us. May we be people whose hearts are not far from you, whose hearts desire to have the good news of Jesus to come in and become a reality so that what we do would be honoring to you, so that what the world actually sees among us is the gospel at work, not a bunch of people who have the outside of the cups clean, 
but inwardly we're lovers of money and we're hypocrites and we love power and we love to justify ourselves. May that not be true of us. May we be people who repent not of just the bad things but of the good things for wrong reasons. Continue to change the motivational structures of our heart, we pray. We ask these things for the fame and the glory of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.